All right, everybody, welcome to the podcast. And I, uh, after a long conversation, I, I finally just had to hit record because I have Peter Docker on today. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. It's a delight to be with you on your show. Thank you. It is so good to have you here. And Peter was a pilot in the Royal Air Force. And uh, he and I started talking about flying and my days flying in combat in Iraq. And, and Peter back then was uh, the commander of a tanker squadron. And we, we told some pretty crazy stories about getting gas at 30,000 feet over combat zones. And, and uh, folks, one of my least proud moments ever in a cockpit was one night uh, when I totally messed it up trying to get gas from a big giant tanker over Iraq. And uh, I shared that story with Peter. So one of these days, I'll have to tell you guys the whole story, but then you might know more about me than you want. But uh, Peter, uh, let, let me share you a little bit about Peter. And uh, you, you recently wrote a book called um, Leading from the Jump Seat. And when I, when I heard the title, I'm like, well, that's fascinating because here's the here. What's the jump seat? If you guys think of a airliner, right? You got the pilot and the co-pilot, and they're doing all the stuff. But there's another seat on a in a in a bigger airplane um, where the where you just you sit and you're strapped in and you don't you can't you're not close to any of the controls. So how do you lead from a jump seat? I'm like, okay, I, I think I really like this. And your subtitle here was how to create extraordinary opportunities by handing over control. And you know what, folks, that really ties into what we're doing here at Eternal Leadership Beyond Influence. It's about who you are, how you're showing up in the world, why you're doing it. And uh, you've developed this beautiful framework as you have had this incredible leadership experience uh, journey through your life. So just a little bit about Peter, folks, because I, I know you got some big passions around helping become extraordinary leaders, unlocking their talents. Um, you teach leadership. Uh, I believe you co-wrote a book uh, that people might be familiar with with Simon Sinek called Start With Why. Uh, Find your one. Well, I, yep, that's right. And uh, the, one, second one. That's, uh, the second one. And fantastic book. And then you got out and you had all this experience and over, I'm just reading this here, 90 countries, oil and gas, construction, mining, pharmaceuticals, banking, television, film, Peter, you need to slow down, buddy, because I'm not even done here. Manufacturing <laughs> services. You got all these clients from Google and Four Seasons. But here's the cool thing. 25 years as a Royal Air Force senior officer. And folks, I got to do some work a couple of years ago with the Royal Air Force in, in uh, England at, at Lake and Heath. And I was so impressed with the quality, the professionalism, the culture. I got to tell you, it, it really was it really was special. Peter, amazing group of people. Uh, I'd love to go back. Anybody in England listening? All right, you were a force commander during combat operations. Uh, you've been, you've had to do work literally all over the globe. You've been a professional pilot, aviation training. You did standards. You trained postgraduate at postgraduates at the United Kingdom's Defense College. You flew the Prime Minister around the world. That's kind of cool. And you also have led multi-billion dollar international procurement programs. You do a lot of keynote speaking. And folks, I know, I know, you know, we're starting to get back to a point where we, you know what, we need good speakers. People are starting to gather together again. So both Peter and I would love to come in. And uh, But I got to tell you, you're going to love Peter's message. So with that, 
Peter, I'd love to share with you a little about your journey because I know it was a lifetime. This isn't a book that you said, hey, I think I'm going to do this. This was a lifetime that came together that culminated in what, you, what you're doing right now. So I'd love for you to bring us back a little bit and talk about your journey. Well, thanks, John. And thanks for your generous introduction there. And I'll just pick up on one thing, you know, having visited over 90 countries and worked with so many different people, the one thing that really strikes me is that what brings us together is so much more than keeps us apart. And I, I feel that that's a great message of hope, particularly in, in, in where we are in the, the world at the moment. Uh, and it's been an absolute privilege working with and connecting with people from so many different backgrounds, cultures, religions, countries. And that's been the joy of a lot of my travels. But yeah, I was in- Well, you know what, let me put an exclamation mark on that though, Peter, because it's something I've observed also, being able to work all over the world. You know what, here's what I found, here's what I have learned about people. And uh, regardless of maybe what you're observing, you know, um, is it that, you know what, people, they're good people. And you know what, they want, they have good hearts. They want to have healthy relationships. They want to do meaningful work. They want to be in um, good community. And regardless of maybe what I think I'm observing, if I go into a conversation and I make an assumption that, you know what, it's a good person with a good heart, they want to do good work. And you know what, there is a way for us to find common ground, even when I might not see it. And all of a sudden, the people that you would think that um, just that would, that's not going to be a, a good connection. Some of my best friends are people that don't share any of probably many or most of my values and beliefs. But I think you're right. If we saw the good in other people versus seeing them as this object that we disagree with or wanting to put them in a box to define them because of maybe something they said or they supported, it would, it'd be a different place. It would indeed. And picking up on what you're saying there, John, I, I think one of the most important things for me is to stay curious. Mm. You know, when I, I mm -hmm. meet people, approaching those conversations, those meetings with curiosity, uh, you can discover so much more. And uh, to your point, having faith that, that people generally are coming from a good place. You know, they really are. And we can work with that. And what's closely aligned with that, something that is deeply important to me, is the, the notion of mutual respect. Mm -hmm. and that, that is one of the guiding drivers for me in my life. And in my book, I write about how I came to that uh, as one of my, my key drivers in my life through some of the choices that I made. So yeah, I, I, what a great message of hope right from the, uh, the starting point here in this conversation, John. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to connect with so many people around the world and to continue to discover uh, new ideas and new thoughts and new ways of seeing things. And uh, I think that's the joy of having the privilege of being able to travel as both you and I have over the years. Yeah, you know, is I agree. And, you know, for you, though, Peter, you know, as you, you know, have been in so many, you know, as you worked your way up into so many leadership roles, did you ever find kind of that notion of seeing the best in people or trying to come from a place of curiosity challenged? Yeah, of course. It happens. I, I think even then curiosity can serve us well. You know, um, 
It's like when someone comes to you with a complaint, something they're really upset about. Quite often it can be tempting to try and sweep that away or sweep it under the carpet or ignore it or just you know, charge on through anyway and squash that complaint. But actually, in my experience, it really pays to dig underneath that complaint and discover what's the underlying commitment. What's that commitment that is causing them to put their hand up and complain about something or mm. to act in a certain way that doesn't seem quite right to you? Rather than trying to squash that, when we can discover the underlying commitment that person has, that's something that we can work with. We can then use that, well, what may have occurred as negative energy, we can use it as a positive force to figure out a way forward. So to your point of has that faith in people really been challenged? Yes, it has, of course. But often you don't know what's going on in that person's day or you don't know what's bothering them. But if you have the curiosity to explore that and understand what has caused them to be as they are, then it usually gives you great insight in how you can shape that and work with that. And I think that's a message that's important for all of us, but it's particularly important for those of us who choose to lead or in, are in positions in, in business where leadership is an expectation. Yeah, and I like what you said there. You know what, in, in something I found in that process too is I really got into more leadership roles and started leading larger teams where, you know, when you're a peer on a team and there's maybe that difficult person, it's kind of easy to just, you know, I'm just not going to do as much work with them. But when you're leading that difficult person, or that difficult person is affecting a team that you're leading. You know, I had to start doing, I'm like, well, why am I reacting so negatively to this person? But as I unpack some of the things that had led to some of these mindsets and paradigms and beliefs about myself that were preventing me from showing up as my best, that's when I actually realized that, you know what, there's stuff in my life that I probably won't share with other people. Some of it is packed with some, maybe some guilt or some shame, or it just wasn't a good situation. And some of that behavior might be tapping into that. And then what I started saying is, you know what? I started looking at somebody and going, you know what? I will guarantee you that there's something in their life I'm, I might never know about. And they're a good person, but there's something that's causing them to maybe show up this way in this situation or interact with this personality style on our team this way. And what if I could help them build a little bit of awareness like I've been able to build and just show up a little bit better person? And by taking that approach for me, it just unlocked some of the most amazing teams that I've ever been able to work with. Well, I love what you're saying there, John. It reminds me of, well, something I write about in my book, which is, is everything that we do that's important to us in our life. Everything is driven by just one of two things. It's either driven by fear or it's driven by love. Mm -hmm. So I'll come back to the love piece, particularly as it pertains to business, because people get a bit jittery often when I talk about love in business. So we'll come back to that. But let's address fear first. You know, Fear is triggered when we sense that our life is in danger. And that's okay, you know, that's natural. It has a step back from the oncoming car that we suddenly see before we cross the road. But fear is also triggered in three other situations. It's triggered when we sense that our status, our reputation or our livelihood is under threat. 
And when we sense that our status, reputation, or livelihood is under threat, fear then tends not to serve us quite so well because it shows up as perhaps anger or it shows up at the other extreme of timidity. We start to close down and instead of seeing the world as a place of possibility, we see it as a place of scarcity, as a zero sum, as a win-lose, and we've got to win and everybody else has got to lose. And ultimately we start to not think about others around us, but we focus just on ourselves. And worst of all, fear can bring out ego. And ego is the Greek word for I. And when we lead from a place of ego, we end up, well, upsetting people, hurting people, and certainly it's not sustainable. But here's the thing. Whenever we fear, whenever we sense that fear has been triggered, when our status, reputation, or livelihood is on the line, we have a choice. We always have a choice. And that choice is to see fear as a warning flag. And rather than reacting to the fear, use that warning flag to choose to lead from a place of love. Now, in a business context, love will look like um, seeing the world as a place of opportunity and possibility rather than scarcity. Instead of focusing in on ourselves, we focus in on our people, on our team, and those that we serve, that our company is set up to serve. Instead of, well, anger or ego, we lead instead with what I call humble confidence. And humble confidence is a combination of things. First of all, the confident bit. Confidence is about recognizing our own strengths and capabilities, being absolutely resolute on where we're heading and ready to take the decisions when they need to be taken. But then the humble piece comes in, having the humility to listen, humility to listen to our team. And importantly, rather than always seeking to be the one who has the answers to the challenges we're facing, be the one who instead is focused on asking the important questions. Because when we do that, we no longer become the constriction in the pipe of progress as the leader. We start to access what I call the collective genius of the people of our team around us. So fear, love, those are the only two things that drive us forward. Those things that are deeply important to us. And one thing connects fear and love, and that's courage. Courage cannot exist without fear, but courage can only be sustained by the love for something. That is really insightful because, you know, a lot of young leaders that I get to work with, they feel like they need to have the answer. Like that is the role in leadership or it's an element of leadership. And as your way you're unpacking that, Peter, if that is how I'm approaching a leadership situation, that means it's really coming from a place of ego. If I feel like I have to be the one with the answer, which then also would be a flag that, hey, guess what? There's, a, there's an element of fear playing in here, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Right? So it is going to be really hard for me to show up as a, the best of myself and get the best out of my team if I'm actually showing up from a place of scarcity um, and a place of fear. And that ego, folks, as you're listening, right, is a warning flag. And, and I love what you said, right? Because, you know, it does take courage to say, I don't have the answer. Absolutely. But, you know, 
let's just unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, John, please. Really, really important. First of all, let's give ourselves a break here because the way that we're brought up through the schooling system, through work, is we're encouraged to be the one who knows the answer. You know, when we're at school, we get rewarded. When we put our hand up, we know the answer. We start to focus in on those things that we're good at. We men may then go off to college or university to specialize. We then graduate and we get a job based on our ability to know the answer in our chosen subject. And then we start to work and presumably we'll do a good job. And if we do, then we get promoted based on knowing the answer, being able to sort things out. But finally, we'll get to the stage where we're promoted and we're no longer doing that job. We're taking care of the people who are doing that job. And that is a big transition that often isn't recognized, we're not trained for. And so what do we do? Well, we revert to trying to do what we've always done, which is be the person who knows the answer. Mm -hmm. But that's when we become the constriction in the pipe because our team then can only advance as quickly as our own knowledge allows. But then to your point, if we switch focus and we are able to put our hand up and say, look, I don't know the answer to the challenge that we're facing, but here's the reason why we've got to figure it out. So this leads to another dual thing that I, I, I love in language. Um, there are just two other things in life as well. There is content and there is context. Content is the stuff that we work on, uh, things that we say, the things that we do, but content has got no meaning whatsoever without context. Context gives meaning to what it is we do. It's like a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle that we have as a kid, you know, all those puzzle pieces on the table, that's our content. But it's only when we see the picture on the puzzle box that we get the context and we can figure out how those puzzle pieces come together. So coming back to my example, when we are promoting, we find ourselves formally leading a team, that's when we need to shift our focus from all the jigsaw puzzle pieces, the content, and instead be focused on painting that picture on the puzzle box. You know, what's the meaning of the work that we're doing? Because the clearer, the more vivid we can make that picture, the easier it is then for our people on our team to figure out how to bring their individual puzzle pieces together. But if we're down in the weeds, fiddling around with those puzzle pieces ourselves, no one is taking care of that picture on the box. And that's when things start to fall apart because the meaning from the work that we're doing starts to evaporate. Yeah, so it, part of the purpose of leadership is is painting that vision. I think it's one of our our highest responsibilities. But you, when you were talking, I, here's here's what hit me: is you got this beautiful picture, right? If uh, that that is the vision, and where do the puzzle pieces fit in? But if I see my see myself as that individual puzzle piece, right? One of the sides is kind of gray, and you know, it's the you know, it's plain, and the other side has part of that picture. And as a leader, I also need to know the context of that individual's what's on that picture side of theirs so that they can see where they actually, where they also personally fit, 
right? If I, I also have to understand the context of our vision, of our mission, of the work that we're doing in the context of why it's important to Peter, who's on the team. What is this doing for you personally? How does this fit Absolutely. into your values, the goals that you have in life, your, your marriage or whatever is most important to you? Don't you think? Totally. You know, we need to make it personal. And uh, often that is the role I, I see um, us who are in, who choose to be in uh, roles that have formal leadership. We need to be able to pull the signal up out of the noise. It's like trying to tune in one of those old radios, you know, you hear all the static, but finally you get the signal. And often our job is to find that signal for people and to help them tune in in a way that is relevant for them. So, you know, I'll, I'll give an example to bring this to life. One of my greatest challenges was when I led three squadrons during the 2003 mm. Iraq war. And we flew large, unarmed, undefended air refueling aircraft about the size of a 767. And, uh, you know, the, the AAA, the anti-aircraft guys on the ground would, would like to take shots at us, you know, um, which got a bit irritating because there wasn't much we could do. But prior to that, the start of that conflict, I was sat in the, the Saudi Arabian desert with my 200 people. And there was a lot of noise around politically. We can all remember that. I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of noise, a lot of concerns, demonstrations in cities around the world against uh, the impending conflict. And um, I felt a little bit uncertain, perhaps, about what we're, we're about to do. I didn't have all the answers. But what I did know is that I needed to give focus for my people. I needed to paint that picture on the box or tune in the radio, whichever metaphor you like. I need to make it crystal clear to them because otherwise it would further endanger their lives. So a couple of days before the start of the conflict, I remember gathering everybody on the, uh, on the airfield, on the aircraft pan, and we had the photograph in front of the jets, as you often do in these situations. And I thought, I need to say something. I gathered everybody around me in a donut shape, and I, I was in the middle. I didn't know what I was going to say, to be honest, John, but I just let the words come out of my mouth. I turned to my aircraft technicians, the engineers responsible for maintaining the aircraft. I said, guys, your job is to maintain these 40-year-old aeroplanes we've got. I know we don't have enough spares. I know the conditions in sandstorms, whatever, not great, but your job is to make sure those aircraft are serviceable so as the air crew, the pilots and crew can do their job. I then turned to the aircraft and I said, Guys, your job is to take these aircrafts and fly every mission that we're given. Because unless we fly every mission, we're not going to be able to give the gas to the fighter jets who are depending on us. And if those fighter jets don't get the gas that they need, then our, our troops on the ground, British, American, and Australian, they're not going to get the air cover they need. And those guys are going to die. Period. As it turns out, I hit on the signal. All the politics and everything else, all the newspaper headlines, that all dissolved for people into the background. They were absolutely focused on that picture that I'd painted, that everyone had to do their job because people they'd never met wearing similar uniforms to them who were relying on the work we were doing depended on them for their lives. And I've never seen anything like it. You know, in the first night of conflict, I saw 40 so that, create, that created some unity. 
that it, pulled, it them, that pulled it, everybody together with a common yeah. thread. It, it made it personal and it made them think beyond just themselves. And yeah, I, I thought on the first night when I, I waved off 40 of my young men and women, I wouldn't see them all back. Thank heavens they did come back. And over my four and a half months, uh, in terms of results, because everybody likes results, we were tasked with 479 missions and we flew 479 missions. But above all else, everyone who I took out, we brought home safe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is the importance of painting that picture on the box. It's the importance of being willing to be the person not with the answers, but being the one who asks the important questions and making it personal for everyone on our team so they then together can figure out the answers that we need to move ourselves forward. Well, and I, I'd love for you to share, because I loved reading the story that kind of led to the title of your book, Jump Seat Leadership. You yeah. were, you had just signed off a, a new pilot in, in every squadron, and we had this in the Navy too, right? You, you, you're kind of the junior guy. In the, in the Navy, we called, uh, what I was called a nugget. I, I don't know where the term came from, <laughs> but a nugget is like the new guy. And I'll never forget when I first, because this is, uh, I was 10 years before you, but I was brand new to the squadron and we were just steaming on the Persian Gulf for Operation Desert Storm. Yeah. And I was so junior when combat first started, my commanding officer would not let me fly what we called blue water ops because we were heading over. That means that when we, we take off and we're in an area of the ocean, that there is no divert fields. If we had a problem, the only place to land is on the carrier. So, I mean, you're going through this whole, you're constantly learning, you're constantly building trust, you're constantly growing professionally, but there has to be a point though, where your commander looks at you and says, okay, you are qualified for a section leader to be a aircraft commander. And you had just done that with a brand new person and you got into a pretty hairy situation. Could you yeah. hear that story? Because it led to the framework that, that has become this book that I honestly, I, I, I'm really enjoying. Well, thanks, John. I, I mean, first of all, this wasn't as punchy as the sort of work you did in your F-14s. Uh, you know, hats off to you there, but much more pedestrian in comparison. But we, at the time, I was flying large passenger jets. We carried about 140 people. I was still in the Air Force, but that was our job. And... Um, We'd just finished training a new guy, Callum, who was an experienced pilot on the aircraft, but he'd just moved over from being a first officer, a co-pilot, to becoming a captain. And he'd done his six months of detailed training. And where I came in was just to do a final certification to sign him up as I monitored him as he flew from the UK over to Washington, Dulles, and then on to San Fran. And he flew into San Francisco, a very busy airport. Uh, he did a great job, touched down, taxed in, we shut down, all the passengers got off. And I turned to him and I said, Callum, great job. You did very well there. I'm now signing you up fully. You're a fully certified captain, responsible for the safety of the aircraft and passengers anywhere in the world. We're stopping here the night, but in the morning, you can fly us back with a regular crew. You can fly us back to Washington, Dulles. I'll be down the back with the other passengers, uh, you know, catch you up on some paperwork. And it was a great moment, as you fully appreciate, John. Sure. So come the following morning, uh, I was reading a, a magazine waiting for the flight to be called. And Callum, the, the new captain, he came to me. He said, excuse me, sir, because 
I was several ranks above him. He, that's how he referred to me. He said, look, it's very busy during rush hour out of San Francisco. It's not a place we come to often, he said. So uh, can you come and sit on the jump seat to act as an extra pair of eyes, just to watch out for other traffickers we're taxiing out to the runway and also make sure, you know, we don't turn the wrong way and end up in the sin bin, as it's called, where you're delayed for ages. I said, yes, of course, Captain, I'll be delighted. I thought, you know what? That's a really courageous thing to do because he just got me off his back after six months of being monitored and checked. And so it would have been his first opportunity just to, to get on with it and, you know, have me off his shoulder. But Can no, I ask you a question connected. in that? Yeah, of course. What do you think it was about your leadership style? Because I understand the military culture that he felt that he didn't have to have ego in that moment. He could go to you as a resource versus trying to have to prove something to you because oh. you were doing something that created an environment that allowed that to happen. And that that's, that's something we could learn from. Well, John, really incisive, actually your question, because um, I'll finish the rest of the story in a moment, but it is not the fact that uh, we survived the emergence that I'll go on to talk about. It's the fact that Callum invited me mm -hmm. onto that flight deck. That is the key thing. You know, here is a guy who'd spent months qualifying. He's got a very senior chap, me, very senior in rank compared to him, but also an experience on that aircraft as a pilot. And yet he invited me mm -hmm. to sit on that flight deck. So what that indicates is that, first of all, we have mutual respect. I have respect for him as a, a captain of that aircraft. He had respect for me in the knowledge that I wasn't going to interfere. You know, I'm getting the way. I, I'd be part of his team, you know, despite the fact I was senior in rank. He was the authority on that aircraft because he's the aircraft captain. And so this points directly to the relationship that we built over the, uh, the months and years before that. It points directly to the training that we'd given him to equip him to do that job and the mutual trust and respect that we had between us. And so, you know, it begs the question, although many people listening don't fly airplanes, you know, would you be invited in a similar situation in your business? Someone you've just qualified or just signed off, you know, perhaps a new salesman who's very competent at their job, would they invite you into a sales meeting that they're running just to act as an extra pair of eyes? Or would they feel intimidated or potentially undermined? Or judged. Whatever the answer to that is, it says a lot about your own leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, uh, Great point. And I think it's worth dwelling on, you know, are, if you're in a leadership role, are your people bringing you in proactively into situations mm. um, or, well, or are they only bringing you in sometimes? And I think that there's some clues in there on places that each of us can get a little bit better. I totally agree. And the book, my book, Lean from the Jump Seat, is a how-to guide of how to create this environment where you too would be invited in a similar sort of situation. But there I was on this day in San Francisco, invited onto the jump seat. And as you've already mentioned, the jump seat is on the flight deck of large aircraft. You can strap in if you're a qualified crew member, 
you can use it often to hitch a ride home, but you sat there, you, you can actually touch the pilot, you're that close. But you've got a great view at the front of the aircraft. So, you know, that's why I wanted to be sit, uh, sitting there. And we taxied out, and Callum did a great job, as I knew he would. And we lined up on the runway. We had clearance to take off. We thundered down that runway. And it was all going well until we reached about three, four, five hundred feet above the ground. And that's when we had effectively an emergency. We hit severe turbulence. Now, severe turbulence when you're up at altitude at 35,000 feet, that's going to be really uncomfortable as a passenger. Perhaps the lockers above will break open, stuff will fall out, drinks will be spilled. If you're not strapped in, you'll be thrown around. Uh, you could end up with bruises or perhaps a break, but you know, you're going to pass through it. But down at around about three or 400 feet in a big aircraft, turbulence is so much more dangerous. And Callum was there wrestling with the controls, desperately trying to keep us away from the ground. Where I was sat in that jump seat, John, what I then chose to do in the next two seconds would dictate whether we all survived or not, the 140 people on board. And here's what I chose to do. Absolutely nothing. I sat there with my hands in my lap, perfectly calm, and just allowed Callum to get on with what he needed to do. I had no difficulty at all doing that because, well, I knew that Callum would be able to sort out the problem. If I didn't have confidence he could sort out the problem, I'd have had no business signing him up the day before as a fully certified captain. What I needed in that moment was not to be a leader. I needed to become a great follower. I needed to have Callum feel, mm. to sense that I had his back because that would then give him the space where he could do what he needed to do. And that, that gave me the, the the title of the book, Leading from the Jump Seat, because, you know, we all hand over control at some stage. If we're the CEO of a company, we will retire. If we're the leader of a team, we'll leave, we'll move to another team. As a parent, and I've got kids, you know, as a parent, eventually our kids will grow up, leave home and start to lead their own lives. So handing over control is inevitable. Leading from the Jump Seat is about how we embrace that inevitability. Because it turns out if we do embrace it, if we focus on lifting people up, giving them the space that they need, so when the time is right, they can take the lead, it is the most powerful form of leadership possible because it's not about retaining or increasing our own power, it's about empowering others. And then when we do take that step back, they can carry forward those things that are deeply important to us long after we've gone. That is jump seat leadership. So that's the story of Callum. Uh, well, yes, and that's brilliant because think about it. If we were all leaders, that would be terribly uh, inefficient because that actually wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're all leaders. You know, uh, you know, people say everybody's a leader, but guess what? When I'm in, an, in a family, um, at your company, at your nonprofit, at your church, we do have to follow. And I would also tell you this, I have learned some of the most in my leadership journey, Peter, by following some of uh, the, some people that were really hard to follow. 
they were difficult. They were, I didn't like how they made decisions. I was part of the team and the mission for very important reasons, but the person, and guess what it taught me is how to work with people that were very different than me. And they were challenging to me personally. And in that I, cause I had some great mentorship. This was actually early in my military career. It was a commander I had that was very difficult. He actually told me once in his stateroom when he was at the Naval Academy that his chosen form of leadership is fear and intimidation. He had studied leadership and he thought this was going to get him the best results. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you got that mastered. And you know what, though? I had a decision to make. Do I become the person that's negative and gossiping? Or like you said, we had a mission protecting people on the ground. Like or do I let do I let my petty differences and my dislike of a person get in the way of actually being a great leader to my team? And I got to tell you, the two years that I worked for this gentleman taught me great things about myself. It taught me what I didn't want to be and do as a leader and taught me how to really stay calm and make good decisions when things were really challenging. And I think we have to remember that, that sometimes, you know what, being a great follower means, you know, serving the mission and serving that person above us until we can get that situation to change. And, and I got to tell you by doing that, cause I had some other people that we, we decided we're going to really, we're not going to do the, this, the typical way we're going to try to be great followers. We were able to affect the culture of that squadron in a very positive way over time because of choices that we made, because I knew that if, because I hate it, I've always hated gossip and small talk. It's just petty. It's, it's a cancer if it's in your organization and note to self, it's in your organization. So we got to root some of these things out. But um, I, I love the, this concept of followership. If we can be a great follower, study leadership, we can actually learn, like you talk about in the book, right? It's like learning to fly. It's like learning to lead. We learn to lead by following. And that is a process that continues my whole life. I am, and yeah. what I'm doing now at 55 years old, I am still learning and I'm still following. I'm still submitting to others uh, from mentors to people with different experience. I mean, it's a constant process. It is. And I, I think I, I love what my, uh, my friend uh, and former U.S. Navy SEAL Rich Davinis talks about, which is dynamic leadership. You know, sometimes we do need to be out in front. Uh, that that's that can be our role but equally often we need to take a step back and allow others to lead and becoming a great follower as I did with Callum because if we are always out in front we are not creating the leaders of the future who themselves can take a step out in front too so yeah this dynamic notion of dynamic leadership where on occasions we're out in front but on other occasions we're taking a step back that's key and always bearing in mind that eventually we all take a step back. Even if you are the sort of person who says, no, I'm going to keep a grip of my company until the day I die. Well, news for you, when you die, you're highly over control, you know? So, <laughs> and when you they die, really, they probably won't show up at your funeral, unless you well, got free food, <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, the point is that in that situation, what you've been working on all your life, you want to make it count, I'm sure. So don't you want it to be carried forward 
when you've taken that step back or when you're no longer around on this planet, you know? So this is the whole point of leave from the jump seats, creating those people, giving them the opportunity where they can carry forward those things that are important to us when we're no longer doing it ourselves. Yeah, and I think what you're illustrating here, to give me some, some license here, is you're illustrating, I think, you know, a lot of us talk about the definition of leadership. What I'm seeing in what you're talking about here, Peter, is really the purpose of leadership. And here's kind of the arc that I'm that you've shared is a. It's really important to cast the vision, like you know, what's the big picture vision of what we're doing? What is the we're mission, our our mission and purpose? What creates that unity that we can all basically almost that true north on what we're doing, why we're doing it, and then in that. You got to learn to fly. You got to put yourself in a situation where you have to be challenged. You have to follow. You have to be in, you know, uh, situations. And then you got to practice flying. You got to practice leadership because all of a sudden you're going to have uh, dynamic leadership. You're going to follow to the point where now you're going to be trusted. You're going to be trusted to lead a team, to accomplish a mission, to launch a product, to hit a sales goal. And then from there, you're going to be the person that can now teach others. You're going to be able to go in and look at somebody. And I think this is really important. How do we give the people that we're working with the knowledge, the experience, and the tools in order to delegate to them successfully? People don't really understand how to delegate well, because when I, if you started delegating tasks to me and we were doing a business project and, and you'd give me some feedback and all of a sudden we would get to a point where you go, you know what, John, I trust you to go do that. You don't have to check in with me on this on this this part of the project anymore which is now i'm empowered and then as a leader we have to then make the choice to like you did and this is um leading from the jump seat and that is to let go and you decide you made a you have made an instant choice and probably for you because you knew so much and how you'd worked with callum like you didn't even you i'm sure you had a thought do i jump in do i say something do I grab the controls? I've been in situations like this before. And no, I'm going to sit here with my hands in my lap. And that is truly letting go. And then, you know, what we do is we go back and we start now to evaluate how well am I doing these things? How well am I casting vision, you know, equipping my people, uh, challenging myself, growing and learning myself and then teaching it to others and then getting to the point where I trust them. I think you've beautifully illustrated this arc of not just what leadership is, but how it really shows up um, in an organization, Peter. Well, thank you. No, nicely put, John. And I'd say to that as well that, um, again, we need to give ourselves a break. What I mean by that is we're all human. And sometimes we don't get it right, whatever right looks like. We don't do it as well as we'd like. We wish we could have led or said something better. But the important thing is the intention where we're sourcing ourselves from and the trend. So first of all, intention, are we sourcing ourselves from a place of fear or are we coming from a place of love and possibility? That's important. And that will shine through to people just in who you're being, how you're showing up. Mm. But then the trends over time, you know, it's less about single data points it's more about that overall trend over time. Uh, are you becoming that jump seat leader that you wish you had perhaps, you know? And 
my book, Lean from the Jump Seat, is the how-to guide of how to practice these things. You know, it's called a practice because we need to practice them. There are three practices, commitment, humble confidence, and belonging. And we've touched on humble confidence. Um, commitment is about discovering what's deeply important to you. Those non-negotiables that mm. have you move forward, even in the face of uncertainty and, uh, and the unknown. And a commitment comes from that place. A commitment is nothing to do with a contract or a signature. No, a commitment is a promise that we make to ourselves. A promise we make to ourselves to follow through on something. That's all that the commitment is. We can make promises to others, but unless we made that promise to ourselves that we'll follow through, it's unlikely to happen. But I want to touch very briefly on the third practice, which is belonging, you know? And I believe it is hugely important for us, anyone who chooses to lead others, to nurture a sense of belonging. And the way we nurture a sense of belonging, well, the importance of nurturing a sense of belonging is that we all as human beings, we seek to belong mm -hmm. to a team, to a group, to our community. And when we feel that we belong, something remarkable happens. We start to step up, we start to take responsibility for our actions. We start to contribute more than we might otherwise, you know? And the sense of belonging is so powerful. It is something that we really do need to nurture as a leader, because if we don't, if people don't feel they belong, if they don't feel they have a part to play, then they are not gonna contribute as we would hope they would. And the way we nurture that sense of belonging is by caring. We show our people that we care. And the way that we show that we care, it goes beyond empathy. You know, empathy is, yeah, I get it. Mm -hmm. But you can have that empathy without actually caring. The way that we show that we care is that we give people our time. Doesn't mean to say it takes a long time. It can be just a few seconds of time. During the Iraq war I mentioned, you know, I, I, I made it my business to sit down with some of the most junior people under my command and just check in with them. How are they doing? How's things at home? What's going on there? You know, do you have everything you need? And it will take, it took a few seconds, but that moment stayed with them. You know, we, <laughs> many of us want to be significant in whatever it is we're doing in life. And I say that if you want to be significant, think small. It's those small, almost fleeting moments that can have the greatest impact on the lives of others. It's seeking out those opportunities to be the pebble in the pond. You know, when we throw that pebble in the pond, the ripples can go out far and wide, often way beyond where we imagine. So leadership for me is a lot about seeking opportunities to be that pebble in the pond, mm. showing people that we care and lifting them up. So when the time is right, they can take the lead. That was a beautiful way to land the plane, Peter. That was, that was beautiful. Okay, so leading from the jump seat, Amazon, where else can people around the world uh, either connect to you, learn more about the book, find the book, Peter? Well, thanks, John. Uh, people can discover more my website, which is leadingfromthejumpseat.com. And the book, as you say, is open, is available worldwide, paperback, hardcover, audiobook, uh, an ebook in all the usual places. Yes, Amazon for many, I, I know, but uh, available, um, for instance, in China and places where you can't get Audible. 
it's available there. And uh, you can find me on the usual places, um, LinkedIn, at Peter Docker, Twitter, and Instagram too, Peter Docker. Wonderful. Peter, I would love to have you come back on uh, if you would ever like to and keep exploring some of these other areas uh, and continue the conversation. This has just been wonderful. Get to talk to a fellow um, aviator and leader and somebody who really is out there making the world a better place by getting people to see the good in others and lead in a way that is that pebble in the pond. That was the, that ripple effect is it is so needed in the world now, I think more than ever in my personal lifetime in adopting this approach to leadership that you are talking about is a big part of how we, we all want this place to get better. This is how we get gooder. How's that? That's a technical term. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't agree more, John. It's been great being on your show. Thank you so much for having me. You too. Wonderful. Thank you, Peter. Talk to you soon. 